today, I am uh, looking forward to what we are doing. We're going to go back to chapter 1 of the book of John. And before we pray and get into it, I just wanted to lay a foundation for you as to why we're going through the books the way we are. Because we're very familiar with what's called topical preaching or topical teaching, where we grab a topic, whether it be like, you know, uh, let's say... Uh, the grace of God, or we talk about forgiveness, or we talk about the goodness of God. We grab a topic and then we wrap all the verses we can find around that topic and we consider it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if all the verses are taken in context, but the better way of doing Bible study, which is what we're trying to encourage everybody here at Christ Nation to do, is to take your Bible and read through it exegetically, systematically, line upon line, verse after verse, starting with the first verse of a book and working your way through a book. It's always very uh, helpful to get a really good study Bible or to know how to access commentaries. And that way, you know, you can kind of like figure out what it is you're reading. Because sometimes you read and you don't know what you just read. But that's why there are all these other helpful... um, you know, tools that we can use. So what we're going to do is we're going to start back with verse 1 of John chapter 1. And we're going to uh, hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us. I want to just say this, that if you think about why this is so very good to do is because it's very clear how the Trinity works. God the Father affirms Jesus, His Son, When Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water, and God the Father said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father affirms the Son. The Son expresses the Father. He came to show us the Father. The Holy Spirit, we see, glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit has uh, um, this priority, which is, to reveal the Son to all. The Holy Spirit, as a matter of fact, is who goes to the world and convicts the world of their sin. And what is their sin? Their sin is ignoring Jesus. It's amazing that Jesus came into the world and He stood in front of everybody, but they were so blind, John the Baptist had to shout, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Here is the light that has now come. Can you imagine how blind somebody has to be if they have to be told that you're looking at the light? You are in such darkness, you can't even see. Light is shining right at you, standing right in front of you. And John the Baptist had to say to these blind people, unregenerate, fallen human beings, behold, the light has come. And so why I'm saying that is because whenever the Holy Spirit is at work, you will see one thing happen, Jesus revealed. Whenever the Holy Spirit is in a service, what you will see is you will see Jesus glorified. Because the Father affirms the Son, the Son expresses the Father, but it's the Holy Spirit that says, here's the Son, and He will convict you until you can no longer ignore Him. Amen. And so that's why we want to go to the very God-breathed Word, the Spirit-breathed Word, the Holy Ghost-filled Word of God, and study the Word of God as the Holy Ghost breathed it. 
from the first verse to the second verse, as the Holy Ghost wrote it. The Holy Ghost created this narrative in scriptures. And oftentimes what we do is we just go to a, tight, to a, to a topic and we go like, oh, we're going to grab all the verses and we're going to just build this topic, right? But the Holy Ghost had a narrative. The Holy Ghost wrote the Bible. He wrote the, the progression, the chronological order of how to experience God, how to understand God. Amen? So it's really important for us to study the Bible in this way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We give you praise, honor, and glory. Holy Spirit, take your place here amongst us. We know that the Bible is not about the Bible. Neither are you, Holy Spirit, about you, Holy Spirit. But you are about revealing the light. Jesus is about glorifying and expressing the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Heroes, we all have them. We all grew up looking for heroes. People still today look for heroes. I love asking young men, when did you become a man? When did you exit childhood, boyhood, into adulthood? And the answers are, are wild. I'll give you some of the... Um, what do you call that when a movie has been uh, cleaned up? The, G, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the edited version, okay. I became a man when. <laughs> I... Um, when I got my driver's license, I became a man when I got married. I became a man when I got my first paycheck. I got, became a man when I left home. But that's not really when you became a man. You became a man when, and the Jews have it really nailed down, when you move from answering to your earthly authorities to ultimately knowing you're going to be held accountable by your eternal authority, by your heavenly authority. But as we grow up, we all look for heroes. And some who never grow up are still looking for heroes among men. The fact is, we haven't realized just how influential a young person's heroes are to him. And I think that we have pretty uh, much relaxed when it comes to the heroes our children look up to, whether it be actors or musicians or social media influencers. Um, <clears throat> The problem is, the heroes we cultivate influence our worldviews. The heroes we look up to fashion our perspectives, form our philosophies in life more than what we realize. I believe we need to make a much bigger deal out of this, and I believe that we should be reaching into history also, finding the men and the women who had paid the highest price for the ultimate truth and honor them instead of socialites. Reaching into history to discover the testimonies and the character of some of God's instruments throughout history and champion them instead of Hollywood in the lives of our children. How much better for a child to admire an apostle or to admire a prophet of old than to esteem and venerate athletes, Instagram icons and socialites. You see, one Bible author I used to uh, read 
and I love reading his books that, that are in the Bible. He wrote four, but I never saw him as an actual person. I never saw him as a historical personality. Is uh, the Apostle John. Uh, whenever somebody's asked, like, who's your favorite? I think most of us would say Paul, right, other than Jesus. But, but the Apostle John, what a great, what a great personality and what a great testimony. And we wanted to look into that testimony and we want to make the Apostle John real to us as we study the book of John. You see, we have walked through a few chapters in the book of John. But now that Resurrection Sunday is passed, I would like us to go back to the first chapter of this extremely fascinating book. It's very, very different than the first three Synoptic Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Synoptic Gospels, and then you have John. John is very theological. He's very doctrinal. He doesn't tell the history of Jesus, but he tells the doctrine of Christ. And so first, a little bit about this person, John. Uh, it is thought that the Apostle John was between the ages of 13 and 16 years of age when he became a disciple of Christ. All the disciples were teenagers. <laughs> and these men turned the world upside down. We won't say anything else about that. But times have changed. However, I think it's very important to see this truth. God uses people no matter what age. John had an older brother, James. Now, John was the youngest of all disciples, by the way. And then um, John had an older brother, James, who was also one of Christ's 12 disciples. And they were both very passionate, both these brothers of Zebedee. Zebedee was their father's name. And Salome was their mom. And these two brothers grew up in this household where they were raised to be very passionate. They were raised to be extremely zealous and incredibly ambitious, kind of what we would call also hotheads. <clears throat> so during their early days with Jesus, uh, they at times were abrasive. They were very harsh with other people. And every time they were, they drew the rebuke of Jesus. He rebuked them often. In Mark chapter 9, John would not allow somebody to cast a demon out of another person. And, and John was, was completely he dismissed it, and he stopped it, and he, and he rebuked the man. Stop casting our demons. You're not allowed to cast our demons, John said. Why not? Because you're not one of the 12. You're not one of us. So back off. And, of course, Jesus rebuked him for that. On another occasion, James and John, both of them, came with their mom, with their mother, to Jesus. She then asked him, if her, she asked Jesus if her two sons in that day could please sit next to him on the left and on the right. The two most prominent positions in a king's kingdom. Here she is asking Jesus for that favor. And of course, here's the, here's the account. I've got to read it to you because you've got to see what these brothers, how these brothers responded to Jesus, these two teenagers. In uh, Matthew 20, verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. So all three of them came to Jesus bowing down and making a request of him. Jesus said to Salome, the mom, what do you desire? She said to him, say that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine shall sit, one at the right hand and one on your left hand. Jesus replied, 
You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, knowing that he's about to pay the highest price? The boys responded to Jesus. We're able. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These two brothers were not just extremely ambitious, but were absolutely um, despised at one point because of their arrogance and their pride and their pushiness and uh, because of their obnoxious attitude they had. The Bible says that there became a rift between these two brothers and the rest of the disciples. They were part of the twelve, but the rest of the disciples didn't want them around. Finally, in Mark, watch this one, in chapter 12, this always makes me laugh, a few Samaritans refused to accept Jesus when Jesus came into town. And in response to these Samaritans rejecting Jesus, both John and his brother got so worked up about this and they so hated the Samaritans, and this was just the straw that broke the camel's back, they immediately wanted to call fire from heaven so God would consume these Samaritans, these filthy people. Again, Jesus rebuked those hotheads. And as a result of the temperament, Jesus called both John and, uh, and his brother James sons of thunder. So here's a son of thunder that wrote the book of John. The message we get from this book of John is... One second. There's something else I wanted to show you. Um, but I can't because my page three is gone. <laughs> Han, thank you. Han's like, what do you give me for page three? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> In spite of these boyish behaviors that John had, John matured pretty well. I mean, he grew, he grew up nicely. You know, when you read the rest of what he wrote, when you consider um, how great of man he became, in comparison to his childishness when he was a teenager, John began understanding Jesus as he walked with Christ. And uh, John is the only one who recorded Jesus' humble act of washing his disciples' feet. That's the only place you'll find it is when John spoke about it. In John 13, verse 4 and 16. When Jesus hung on the cross, all the disciples scattered. They ran for shelter. They went and hid. But right at the foot of the cross stood Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the youngest disciple. And before Jesus breathed his last, he had already gained so much confidence in this young man who has grown up so beautifully. He looked to Mary, he said, Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And the Bible says from that moment on, John took Mary in and, as his mother for the rest of her life. Now, there are many lessons we can learn from these two personalities. However, there are two that I would like to point out this morning. John's life is an example of how to not only have zeal, but to have love also. Because it's not that you should have less zeal. Oftentimes we go to somebody with great zeal and we say, hey, you've got to calm down a little bit. It's not that somebody has to calm down in their zeal for the Lord. Is that it is that they have to have the same amount of love as what they do have zeal. <clears throat> because zeal without love becomes very inconsiderate to people around. Zeal without love becomes at times cruel to other people. So equally true 
we see how love without truth will become syrupy sentimentality, and that's all it is, is if you love outside of truth. How, mu- how many of you would like to be loved by somebody, but it's not real? There's nothing true about that love. It's just a big lie. Well, nobody wants it. That's like a big disappointment. So, in the same way, John was all about truth, not just love. Secondly, we learn from John's maturing character that bold confidence without compassion, bold confidence without also having compassion is arrogance, self-righteousness. You see, the attitudes of immaturity always received a rebuke from Jesus. And I think the same thing is still true today if and when those attitudes are found and discovered in you and I. There's always a rebuke from the Holy Ghost and from Jesus. Now, even though John is mentioned 20 times in, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John never mentions himself one time. The only way he refers to himself often in his own writing is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which it became such a reality to him that Jesus loved him knowing that he was so unlovely. He was a real punk, yet Jesus loved him. And he started, that is what changed him. You see, John was so transformed that he went from being called a son of thunder where the disciples wanted to distance themselves from him to the apostle known as the apostle of love. It's an amazing thing what maturity does to a person, growing up does to a person. He mentions love 80 times in his book, in his writings. Now, the message we get from the book of John is this, and he states it very clearly. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, But these have been written. What I am writing to you has been written. These have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Can you see how he's driven by the Holy Ghost? It's all about flipping the light switch on Jesus, calling out like John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who's, I am not even worthy of tying his shoelaces. This is the Messiah. So here he says, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not just the Christ, but the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. In this book we learn many things. You'll be so blessed by studying the book of John. But read slowly. Study by using, and I want to encourage you to use commentaries because it's so explanatory. Use the right ones though. So in this book we learn many things that the eternal God has taken on flesh. The eternal God has taken on flesh. The eternal God humbled himself and became one of us. And walked among us. We learn that the uncreated creator, the uncreated creator has taken on flesh in order to become part of his creation, in order to save his own creation. So I'd like us to turn our attention to that very first verse of the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God. But more than that, the Word was God. So, let's look at the statement in the beginning. This is how John actually opens his book, which is quite fascinating. In the beginning, this is an echo of the statement that you find in Genesis 1 verse 1. When Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here Moses is referring to the beginning of the creation. But when John writes, in the beginning, he refers not to the, to the beginning of creation, but to the beginning prior to that creation, where God self-exists from eternity past. God self-exists from eternity past, and from that place, He came to the point of then creating the universe. There was a beginning to the universe. But prior to that, where was God? Who was God? This is what John is answering. I was working at Menards a while ago, and, and there was this one man, atheist, that we would... Uh, talk about the Bible often. And the one thing that he really could never grasp is, well, who created God? Somebody had to. Well, hey, look at that. <laughs> the aseity of God is the, is the attribute of God which is self-generating. He's self-existent. Nothing causes him to exist. He causes everything to exist. He is self-sustaining. He needs no one. He needs nothing to exist. This is God. The aseity of God. When was God self-sustaining? You see, he's, not the, he's the one who gives life, but nobody gave him life. He, he is the source of what we called life. He is the life principle. He is God. Needs nothing, needs no one, ever. <laughs> but He is God all by Himself. When? From eternity past. Before you would wonder, well, when did this happen? You only think, when did this happen? Because you're wired to think in a time span. But God stands outside of time and exists all by Himself forever. And so this is what John is saying. In the beginning, in the beginning, he refers to be the beginning prior to the creation where God self-exists from eternity past. He's saying there was a time where the Word existed before the world was created. Here John is referring not to Jesus the fully God, fully man, Jesus, but to the Word before the Word took on flesh and walked among us in the person of Jesus. Before the flesh took, before He took on flesh, He existed as who and as what, where and when did He exist? This is what John's answering. In John 1.14 it says this, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only Son from the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Psalm 90, verse 2 
explains the same, clearly states that, it, that the eternal God self-existed before creation. Let's look at that, Psalm 90 verse 2. It says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. So I said to this man at Minard's, I said to him, Like the Apostle John, you have to identify God outside of creation. Because of the way we are wired, we can't think outside of the context of everything that exists was at some point made, created, or birthed. But we have to understand that God is not a creature. Because <laughs> we see Him as a creature, a created being. But He's not a created being. He's the uncreated creator that sits above all of his own creation. This is God. So I said to this man, I said, brother, which we weren't really brothers. He, he was an unbeliever, but I call him brother. I said, you know, <clears throat> if I had to say to you, what is eternity? What would you tell me? What's the definition of eternity? And he said, well, it's, you know, Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. They lived happily forever and ever after. Okay. That is, and I said, which way are you thinking? Are you thinking past or historically? Or are you thinking futuristic? Are you thinking forward or are you thinking backwards? Are you looking through your car's uh, windshield or are you looking in the rearview mirror? What, uh, when you think eternity, are you thinking, yeah, he says eternity is forever into the future with no end. I'm like, that is right. I said, but now turn around and look back. Just as eternity in your mind was only future directed, there's also an eternity past. So in other words, if you put yourself outside of a time capsule, there's God. He forever existed and will forever exist. Eternity past to eternity future, He is God. And that is what the psalmist says right here in Psalm 90 verse 2. He says, even from everlasting past to everlasting future, guess what? He's God. The aseity of God, He exists. That's the eternality of God. The aseity of God is that He self-exists. The eternality of God is that He self-exists from eternity to eternity. He always has been God. I don't know if that was a sufficient answer for Him, but I'm still praying for Him. This is to conclude that God exists before the creation, which leads to the logical conclusion that He is not part of the creation. He was not born. He was not made. He was not created by anyone. He is the uncreated creator that lives above His own creation and created things. So Jesus confirms this fact that He is divine and existed from, ever, from eternity past. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, And now you, Father... Glorify me together with yourself and with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. He had glory with the Father before the world existed, before time even existed. So our conclusion here is that when John starts his opening statement with, In the beginning, in the beginning, he was referring to the time before creation called eternity past. 
Then he says, in the beginning was the Word. Wow. Wow. It is so my hope and my heart's cry that we would grab our Bibles and go, God, there couldn't be anything more valuable than what I'm holding in my lap today. So Jesus said, right here, all the glory that I had with you, God, glorify me again. That same glory that I had with you before even the world existed. So the conclusion here is John. John starts with that opening statement in the beginning, but he says at that point right there was what? The Word. The Word was in past tense. You see? In the beginning was past tense, the Word. Even before the creation, that beginning, not the beginning of creation, but the beginning before creation, even then, was, past tense, the Word. It's amazing. Before all things, there is the Word. This also means that before God became a man and took on flesh in the form of Jesus, before all of that, Jesus was called the Word. This was what He was referred to, named, very specifically for a very, for a very uh, 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 reason God called him that. You see, the term word, the word translated in Greek is logos. So Jesus, before he took on flesh, was logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. You might say, wow, Jacques, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is complicated. This is cryptic. I don't even know why I need to know this. But I want to encourage you to hang in, on there, hang in there because um, I, I think God is, is showing you something and showing us something about Himself. And remember, when Jesus loved on somebody, He always revealed Himself. The way Jesus loves you is by revealing Himself to you. We talked about that when we, studied the, when we studied Lazarus and when Jesus raised him from the dead. But here's why Jesus was called the Word. Here's why God called Jesus Logos. You see, if your boss wants to communicate exactly how he wants you to set up the office for this next meeting, how does he do it? He will use words. Let me say it to you this way. A person will use words to communicate and express their will. When you express your will, this is what I want, what do you do? You use what? Words to express your will. Secondly, when you, when you want to get up here, uh, grab the microphone and share your thoughts. I have a thought that I want to share. How do you share your thoughts? You get up here, you take the microphone, and you use words to express your thoughts. So you express your will through words. You express your thoughts through words. When I get home at night... And I want the kids to go to bed. Um, I want to command them to go to sleep. How do I command them? By using words. Go to bed now. Right? I have to use my words to issue a command. Fourthly, when you stand up in front of a judge, <laughs> you raise your right hand to promise that you will speak the truth and nothing but the truth so help you God. How do you make that promise? 
you put your name on the line, your future on the line, by making a promise, and that promise is connected to your word. You, you make that promise verbally. So if you want to communicate or express your will, if you want to share your thoughts, if you want to issue a command, if you want to make a promise, you will do that by using words. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the Jewish peoples were, people were so familiar with um, the idea of God communicating to them how? Through His Word. You hear it over and over again. The Word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so. Or the Word of the Lord came to Moses. This is how God visited His people. He came in word form. So God expresses Himself with His Word. He communicates with His Word. He commands with His Word. He creates with His Word. And God spoke everything into being. Everything God has ever done, He used His Word. Today, you're sitting with His Word in your lap. He is still speaking to you. He's still expressing Himself, His will, to you in His Word. Hebrews 1 verse 1 through 3 says this, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, He spoke to us how? In His Son. He spoke to us how? In His Son. Most people, the only time they think God speaks to them is when they have a feeling, is when they have a goosebump, is when they have intuition, is when they have a peace. No, every time God spoke to people throughout scriptures, they had no peace. He said, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Oh, no way. <laughs> Where's Moses' peace? He had none. Why? Because God spoke to him. Gideon, God speaks to Gideon. You mighty man of valor. Ha, that's not me. Go to war. No, are you kidding me? Not me. And he was, he was, he was shaking. You see, you don't hear God because you feel peaceful. It's got nothing, that's not what that verse is saying. It says, and let, the, um, let the peace of God rule in your life. That's not what it's saying. That's saying when everybody's arguing in the church, don't become resentful and let that resentment cause you to make decisions. It says when everybody's arguing in the church, instead of letting resentment rule you, rule with the let, let your heart be ruled by the peace of God instead. God, your peace, your peace rules me. I don't let hatred, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness rule me. I'm going to choose your peace instead. It's got nothing to do with the voice of God. So here God speaks. Watch this again. Verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us how? In His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. You see, if you don't know doctrine, you don't know the voice of God. It's just that simple. If you have bad theology, you're listening to the wrong voices. Let me just say that again, because I think it's a, this is why we're we, we, not a community-heavy church. We're a doctrine-heavy church, right? We unite around the truth. Because if, if, you have, if you don't have doctrine, you don't have God's voice. That's how it works. He speaks to us how? In His Son. If you have bad theology, you are listening to the wrong voices. 
So here it says, verse 2, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. How did he make the world? Through his Son. Why? Because his Son was the Word. Logos. And how did he create the Word? Uh, how did he create the world? By the spoken Word. So Jesus created everything because God said so. Verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's the radiance of his glory. You know, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to get into the details of the Trinity, but if, if I was a light, and I projected my light onto a wall like a projector. The image of myself onto a wall like a projector, that image. Or maybe it's better understood as a hologram. It's if I am projected to stand right beside myself. Me projected out here and standing there so that you could see the hologram but not the, re not the real. Uh, not the substance, but you saw the hologram in a way God projected himself into the earth in Jesus Christ. From substance to substance. He's of the same substance. He's of the same nature. He's, he's, he's the same deity. He's equal to. He's the same. Projected to us so we could see him. He's God's expressed image. Let's read verse 3 again. And he, Jesus, is the radiance. <laughs> he, the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his nature. The exact. And then it says here, and upholds all things how? By the word. By the word. Wow. So hear this. That God created how? With his word he spoke. God upholds all things we learn here in Hebrews. He upholds everything that he's created by his word. God visits His people by speaking to them. God issues commands by His Word, uses words. God communicates with His Word. God promises, makes promises how? With His Word. So here John is saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And then he says, oh, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. Here John wants to ensure that there's no misunderstanding here. That the reader never gets the idea that the Word was different from God and possibly inferior to God. He clearly states, and the Word was God, just so you know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Oh, and the Word was God. Don't misunderstand that. The Word was God Himself. Equal to God, the same as God, God from God, substance from substance. The exact same character, the radiant expressed image of the same. So when it comes to accuracy, there is no difference in ancient manuscripts regarding this statement. John did not say the word was like God or the word was another God. He's very clearly stating that the word actually was God himself. And this is important because people tend to trivialize scriptures. They like gossip, don't they? It's so amazing. I've seen this. So much that people who love gossip always buy into naysayers real quickly. You know that married couple, he doesn't really want to marry. Oh, why he doesn't want to marry her? Why not? 
You see, gossips love naysayers. They, lo they love, uh, when it comes to politics, there's more gossip than what you realize because everybody just wants to hear what's, what's the latest, what's the scoop on, on, on this one or that one, you know. Um, they love naysayers. No, this is not true. This is not, why not? Because actually there's a word I'm looking for. I'm so sorry. Scandal. People love scandal. Scandal sells. I mean, look at the magazines. And when it comes to the Bible, the world loves to attempt to make you question the very validity of the Scriptures. I can only imagine that to be one of the big problems Eve had because when Satan said, did you know? Oh, know what? What? Tell me. Whisper. You can be just like God. Really? Why? What are you talking about? So people are so inquisitive. They love scandal, and especially when it comes to the very Word of God, the very Logos of God. They attempt to make you question the validity of scriptures. If the world can get you to question the validity of scriptures, they can get you to question the Logos, the Word. And if they can get you to question the Logos, the Word, they're getting you to question God. That is what the snake did with Eve. Did God not do what? Say. That's what the snake said, right? Did God not say? Did God not say you should not eat from this tree? Was his words really don't eat from this tree? Because that's not true. I mean, because, you know, he's trying to withhold from you knowledge that makes him God superior to you. When in fact, if you get that knowledge, you'd be equal to him. So they like to ask questions like, and this is the world, in order to get you to lose credibility in the scriptures that you hold in your lap. They like to ask questions about, you know, like for instance, the gospel according to Thomas. Uh, why they will ask questions. Why did they, you know, when, when people say they, well, they don't want you to know. Who's they? I want to meet they. <laughs> don't you? It's always they. And so here, people want you to know that they decided not to add that book of Thomas, I'm giving one example, there are so many, to the Bible. They, didn't, they did not want to add that book to the Word because they don't believe that that book is Logos. But, you know, you should really look into it because these were all decisions made by man. And when they themselves have never read the wor a word out of that same book, because if they did, they wouldn't even ask that stupid question. I'll give you an example. Here's the Gospel of Thomas saying 114. The Gospel of Thomas is just a bunch of sayings of Christ, right? And this book was written way after the other books, long after Thomas died. But no, no worries. <laughs> we won't go there. So here's the book of Thomas saying 114. And I'm quoting, Simon Peter says to them, let Mary go out from our midst. Let her leave us. For women are not worthy of life. Jesus responds to Thomas. See, I will draw her so as to make her a male instead of a female. Why? So that she also may become a living spirit like all of you males instead of a dead spirit like all of those females. Then Jesus says this, 
for every woman who has become male, changed their gender, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, okay, now, <laughs> people are upset that it's not in the Bible. It's so unorthodox, you won't believe it. It's so filled with heresies, but people won't tell you that, it's, that that's the case. They will just make you wonder, yeah, why is that book not part of? And this is just a, this is just the ploy to get you to lose credibility. The book of Thomas equal to the book of Philip or the gospel according to Philip. They were found both together, wrapped up together, written at the same time, possibly by the same person or the same group of people. And it's the book, the gospel of Philip that you find something like the Da Vinci Code, you know. Again, a big effort to attempt to give you, to, to take your, your confidence in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture away. Trying to cripple your confidence in Logos, in God's Word, in Scriptures, in your Bible. But people love gossip. They love scandal. So they love to hear these people out. And this is why that movie like The Da Vinci Code rattled so many people's faith. How many of you saw The Da Vinci Code? How many of you know about The Da Vinci Code? Yeah. Okay. If you haven't, no worries. It's garbage. But when they themselves have never read a word out of that, you know, they want to believe in, in, in fraudulent books, and there were many of them. But the Da Vinci Code rattled many people's faith in Scripture. They rattled their confidence in Logos and ultimately in God Himself. Almost anything these days rattle people's faith. Why? Because they love gossip. They're gossips. They bind to stuff all the time. They want to hear out every single bit of juicy news that's out there. So what kind of credibility does an artist like Leonardo da Vinci actually have regarding Jesus' life? I mean, how much, how much stake are you going to put into this artist? I mean, really? <laughs> the world today put a lot of stake into artists. They think, well, that guy, that guy thinks this about politics, so I guess I should too. I mean, it's, people are so fickle. What kind of, uh, you know, credibility would you connect to a Leonardo da Vinci who lived 1,500 years after Christ? Now he's painting, he's telling us that Jesus was married to an ex-prostitute. Is that, are we supposed to come to this conclusion because of a painter, an artist? Yet gossips and these people who love that kind of stuff, you know, they buy into it. I say, laugh at them <laughs> because they're number one on the wrong side of history, number two on the wrong side of truth, number three, unfortunately, on the wrong side of eternity. In that movie, Tom Hanks actually asks the question, how do we know Jesus wasn't simply human? And how do we know man isn't divine? See, people have the tendency to humanize Christ while at the same time deify man. We're always working towards that. Human, humanism always works toward that. Trivialize Christ, glorify man. Humanize Jesus, deify humanity. That's what that movie is all about. And people have the tendency to do that. But my encouragement to you today as we read that very first verse in the book of John, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the word was with God. A God who is self-sustaining, self-generating. He is not just the giver of life, the source of life. He is the life principle. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word was God. Jesus was God, is God. Yesterday, today, and forever. From eternity to eternity. So before time and space, before creation, if you can think about that in your mind, if you can imagine it, before time, the clock was not ticking. Before space, there was God. You see, the creation, as Moses spoke in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, that beginning, that beginning needed two things. It needed, well, more, but it needed at least time because if it, wasn't if it was created, when was it created? It needed time. It needed space. Why? Because if it was created, where, where was he going to put it? So it needed time to exist and space to exist because he created it. It's a creation. The creatures that sit below the creator who created them in a time capsule. And before all of that, before time and space, there was Logos. Self-sustaining. God's expressed will. God's expressed thoughts. God's expressed promises. God's expressed commands. God's creative power. There's God's ability to uphold all things that He ever creates at His will. All of this is called what? Logos. Before it took on flesh and walked amongst us 2,000 years ago. There is the Word, which by the way, you hold in your lap today. Wow. So my conclusion is, I want to encourage you, treasure your Bible. Value the Scriptures beyond anything and everything. Study it. Share the Word with everyone in your life. Share the Word with everyone in your life that will listen to you. Why? Because that is the greatest purpose of your life. That is the highest value you can give and the deepest possible way to love, share Logos, share Jesus. Amen. Father, today we just thank you.